Good morning. All right. For those who may not know me, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic, uh, one of the good-looking pastors here at Mosaic. Um, Joel's the other one. Um, and so uh, we thank you for being here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking and continuing our Advent series, When All the Promises Come True. And this morning, we're going to be looking at It Will Be Miraculous. And this is going to be from Isaiah 7, 14, and Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there now to get prepared. And so as we continue this series, it really should be no surprise to us that we need to examine in this Advent season, in this Christmas story, the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. This is one of the most miraculous events in all of human history. Not only that, it is a matter of extreme contention and ridicule. Often the most opposed, quote unquote, unlikely event that happened in the Bible. Even more so than the death and resurrection of Jesus. Even one of America's founding fathers and presidents, Thomas Jefferson, shared his thoughts on the virgin birth. He said, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva from the brain of Jupiter. So Thomas Jefferson thought about the virgin birth, that is someday it would be no different, looked at no differently than Roman, Greek, any other myth that we have in history. So why is that? Why would they think that? Why would people today think that this is incredibly unlikely to have happened? Well, logic would dictate for us, and any of us who have kids in here this morning or have taken a basic level biology course know that virgins don't have babies. We're not going to get into all the details of that, and we'll save you an awkward conversation later, but it's a fair assumption that 99.99% of us in here know that it would be improbable and incredibly impossible for this to happen. This is a bit of a scandal to those who don't yet believe in Christ because we live in a material world that often ignores the miraculous things happening all around us all the time, and we ignore those things because we don't believe in a God who is the God of the impossible and the improbable. You see, the God of the Bible isn't just some ordinary God that's out here doing these things. The one he is, is he's the one that called everything into being, who rescued his people from Egypt, who set down manna from heaven and made a promise to one day redeem and rescue his people from their sins. That's an entirely different God than any of us thought. It's an entirely different God than any of those myths. God is the God of the seemingly impossible. And so over and over again in Scripture, in both the Old and New Testaments, we see God doing things that are considered absolutely impossible by human standards. And yet over and over again, when he makes a promise to his people, 
he never fails to deliver like we just sang about a little bit ago. If he did, he wouldn't be God. Which brings us to our big idea this morning is that trusting in God's promises means leaning into the expectation that he will do miraculous things. So even if you're skeptical in here this morning that all of this is true, that you don't believe this, that you don't believe in a a virgin birth or this guy named Jesus who came some 2,000 years ago to die on a cross, if you don't believe any of that, that's, that's okay. I invite you to indulge this morning, though, the possibility of the enchantment of the world around you and perhaps even the off chance that you might be wrong about those things. And that his miracles are more real and amazing than you can possibly imagine to be true. So before we really just dive into the text and get started this morning, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And we're going to ask for God's help in this endeavor. Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And we pray, Lord, that you open the eyes of the blind, that you open the hearts of those who have hearts of stone. Those who don't know you, that are far from you. God, I pray that you draw them close to you this morning. Father, for the rest of us in here who do follow you and do love you, we pray that you show us something miraculous today, that you remind us of the miracle of your birth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's begin where we have each week in this series with a promise of God from the Old Testament. So turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, if you're not already there. It's going to be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. But Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So there's something in here that might make us immediately uncomfortable, especially within the theological streams that our church swims in, is that Isaiah points out that God will give his people a sign. Now, a good many of us in here, possibly including myself from time to time, tend to discount signs and wonders. But the reality is that this is quite often the way that God makes his promises come about is through signs and wonders. It's how he operates. And regardless of the way that the term signs has been used or misused by people throughout history, basically in in well-meaning ways, God communicates to us in the physical, practical of his written word, but also within the natural world and sometimes in supernatural signs and wonders. And here's the thing that we need to wrestle with and reckon with this morning is that the sign that God promises to give is not natural whatsoever. When we think of the magi who come later in Jesus' lineage when he's about a toddler, the sign that they're given is a natural one. It's a star in the sky. The shepherds guarding their flocks by night when the angelic hosts see them, and they're proclaiming for them to go and see this baby. The sign that they give is a physical, natural thing, a baby laying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. It's natural. 
This is true even outside of the Christmas narrative where we see God using occurrences of the natural over and over again to give a sign, like the rainbow in the sky as a sign that he will no longer flood the earth. That is not how he's going to re-bring his judgment. So none of these things are supernatural, and they're reasonable, and they're natural within the framework of creation. But here in Isaiah, we see an example of God using something that is ordinary and natural, which would be a birth, in an extraordinary and supernatural way. And even in this promise, out of the ordinary sign, God promised an expected Savior. This miracle, this promise would not have been unexpected by the people of Israel. The people of Israel were longing for and expecting a Savior who would come to make everything right. And this wasn't the first time that God declared a promise of the Messiah. We see the first declaration of this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where God is saying, I will send a Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. He promised a Redeemer. Throughout countless stories in the Old Testament, we see shadows and type of who this Redeemer will be and what he will be like. The Messiah himself was expected. Isaiah's prophecy in that sense wasn't telling the people of Israel anything that they didn't already know. They knew this. They knew the Messiah was going to come. But this prophecy... Isaiah is given by God is the first time that we see a how that, my, that Messiah is going to come. And we finally know what that Messiah's name will be, Emmanuel. But a prophecy is only as good as its fulfillment. And this is where we come to Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Matthew records it this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, just fancy Bible language that she was still a virgin, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In the first week of this Advent series, we saw this genealogy of Jesus being played out from the beginning of Matthew 1. But in these two verses that I just read, Matthew begins to track out that fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy through those generations. And what we see is the prophecy is being fulfilled is that God's people still expected the ordinary. We see these two figures come on the scene for the first time, Mary and Joseph, who are engaged to be married. And in the culture of the time, much unlike our own, it would have been incredibly scandalous for a soon-to-be bride to be found pregnant before the marriage. And if pressed, she wouldn't just bring shame to herself and her family and have the family risk losing the dowry for her. But she would be putting her life in jeopardy as well. 
And in that cultural moment, Joseph, upon finding this out, would have been in every right to call off the wedding. But he doesn't. And in reading this at face value, we have a misconception about the culture and a little bit about the timing here as well. Firstly, in the first century Jewish culture, to be engaged was as good as being married. The question at that point wasn't so much as whether or not these two people were going to get married. It was more of the legal aspects of that marriage and the ceremonial process itself. They still needed to settle those things. So at this point, to call off the wedding would have required a divorce. The second issue that we run into is that issue of timing. You know, there's a popular misconception, and I even thought this for a long period of time, that Mary and Joseph didn't actually get married until after Jesus was born. But that wouldn't have been the case. What we're likely looking at here within these verses is a night-before-the-wedding type of discovery on Joseph's part. He's just now finding this out right before they're supposed to get married. So imagine being Mary here for just a second. The week that you're supposed to get married to this man that you've probably known for the vast majority of your life, the moment before you're supposed to say, I do, an angel comes to you, and this is the Drew paraphrase, hey Mary, guess what? I know you've never been with a man before, but you're pregnant. And, and not only that, Mary, it's the Messiah. That would freak me out. She would have known the natural process of things. But instead of running from this opportunity and obligation to bring about the Messiah into the world, she leans into it and she chooses to be obedient and accepts the miracle taking place. So now imagine being Joseph for a second, right? I'm, I'm sorry, but if... The, the night before I was supposed to get married to Cherry, she came to me and said, hey, look, I know we've never been together, but I'm pregnant, and it's, it's the Messiah, and it's God's thing, and I, I, I would not have been like Joseph. That would have bothered me a good deal. And it does bother Joseph, but he, instead of my sinful intent he resolves to not put her to shame and divorce her quietly. I would have blasted that mess on social media. <laughs> this is what we see happening here. But in this, we see the type of man Joseph is. Undoubtedly, he would have known and Mary would have known the prophecy about the coming Messiah. But that doesn't make it any easier to believe, especially when it's happening to you. In that moment, Joseph had to wrestle with the reality that the Christ wasn't going to descend out of the sky in some flaming chariot or come out of a crack in the ground to be this warrior king to lead the people out of oppression from Rome. He wasn't coming in a crazily spectacular way. Instead, the reality of what we see here is that God chose an immensely ordinary means and immensely ordinary people 
to accomplish something extraordinarily miraculous. And while we expect the ordinary, just like they, excuse me, they did, God's ways are miraculously unexpected. Continuing on in Matthew, starting in verse 20, he says, But he, Joseph, considered these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. This part should sound familiar. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's another sign that's happening in the midst of all this, is that after hearing that his soon-to-be pregnant wife is going to give birth, and he mauls over these things as he's trying to fall asleep that night, an angel appears to Joseph and affirms what Mary had told him. The angel even gives Joseph the name he is supposed to call the child, Jesus. Now again, this is something culturally that most of us in here don't really get. You know, now people name their kids all sorts of crazy things with extra vowels and silent Z's and various things that give teachers headaches and look bad on job applications. But culturally, at that time, what would have happened is that the children, especially the firstborn son, would have been given a name in the family lineage, including that genealogy we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But instead of naming the child any one of those names we saw in that genealogy, Joseph is told that he is to call the baby Jesus, for he will save us from their sins. And here's another thing that we don't immediately recognize here is that names really do truly mean something. They're part of an identity for a person. There's something meant to be many pseudo-prophecies over that person and to give them an identity or speak a blessing over them. Yeah, I don't know if you know this and something I alluded to earlier, but my name, Andrew, means strong and manly, which my parents must have realized was going to happen as evidenced by my immaculate beard. <laughs> Jamie, Pastor Jamie, I don't know if you knew this, but his first name is actually Paul. And Paul, one of the translations or one of the meanings of the name Paul means small. <laughs> I don't know if you've met Pastor Jamie. I would not classify him or call him small. Aaron, Aaron, who leads worship for us, especially in the way that your name is spelled, Aaron, I don't know if you know this, A-R-I-N 
means full of joy. Yours actually might make sense. <laughs> but the name Jesus, which is the Latinized name of the Hebrew Yeshua, which would be Joshua, literally means God saves. So the angel wasn't just saying, hey, name the baby this. He's saying this child has an identity. This child isn't just some child that's being born into the world. The angel, just like Joseph would have expected, the angel actually is pointing back to his family lineage and saying he's from God. He is Jesus, and he will save us. But ultimately, you should be thinking to yourself, I thought that Isaiah said his name would be Emmanuel. Matthew even says that it would be Emmanuel, but his name is Jesus. You know, something's not adding up there, right? And I'd say that you are absolutely correct. But there are two things here to consider. One is that two chapters later in Isaiah, chapter 9, Isaiah also says he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you look through Scripture, Jesus wasn't called any of those things at any point in his life by his friends in Galilee or any of those people he healed. So what's going on? The thing is that we often look at these passages at Christmas time and marvel in at and focus on the virgin birth. And that virgin birth is certainly miraculous. But just as Thomas Jefferson and others have criticized the account as fable, because there are countless other myths and religions that claim a virgin birth, these types of miracles and divine interventions, only one of them has an identity attached to it. The focus here in both Isaiah and Matthew isn't on the virgin birth. Isaiah says it's the sign of what's to come. The miracle of Christmas, the miracle of this season, what's really, truly miraculous about the birth of Christ is that God didn't just send a Savior. He sent himself. He sent Emmanuel, God with us. Theologian Sam Storms sums it up this way. He says, the principal reason for the virgin birth was so that the entry of God into human flesh might be by divine initiative. It is not by any human act or at any human initiative that salvation comes to us. It is divinely initiated. Man does nothing. Listen to this part because in some areas in, in sex this is scandalous. Mary and Joseph did nothing other than to submit to what God would do. God did it all. This is, in essence, the problem that the whole biblical history and the whole biblical narrative is addressing, is that how can a holy and just God be reconciled with an unholy, unrighteous people? 
the answer to that is that his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who was and who is and is to come again to make all things new. And just like the first time that it happened, we can lean into the expectation that when he comes again, all the promises will come true, and it will be miraculous. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this in the, the midst of our, our heartbreak and our struggles, our fears, anxieties, when we look at the world around us and we see nothing but war and destruction and famine and conflict? We lean into the promises of God. We have no reason to believe that he won't fulfill his promises. If he can do something utterly miraculous, like coming down, condescending to be Jesus in the flesh, God incarnate with us, there's absolutely no reason for us to fear. There's no reason for us to lose hope. There is no reason for us not to believe that he won't come again to make all things new. This Advent season, what we're celebrating right now, is meant to point us to a future coming when he will make all things new. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray.